putting putting ed back together since 2019. Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Rob McLeod, joined as always by the genuinely delightful and empathetic Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brendan? How dare you? (laughs) Today, we're discussing differentiation, the idea of finding someone's zone of proximal development. O'Leary, I know you like to throw around the term zone of proximal development. Can you give the folks at home an idea of what that might mean if it's a new term? The ZPD. So uh, Lev Vygotsky, some point in the 20th century, I believe, developed this theory alongside some other ideas of supporting students. The idea is that a more knowledgeable other, whoever they may be, can help you to move to the next step in uh, skills or knowledge or, or, or really any area better than you can do by yourself, especially they can identify what that next step is. And then they can almost like pull you up or help you along the way. And we call this scaffolding. It's a related term is scaffolding. And so core to the idea of differentiation is how we scaffold or present information to students so that they can actually access it a little bit easier and maybe make that step up a little bit quicker and a little bit easier, make more progress. So it's really in line with those mainstream ideas. We've talked about a lot about uh, goals and moving in steps towards those goals and really measuring them accurately, meaningfully, being able to be transparent about what we're trying to do. So this is a, a really core and kind of revolutionary idea in terms of education. Yeah, and I feel if you are to apply for almost any teaching position in 2021, there's going to be some question in your interview about how do you differentiate or you've got this set of learners in the classroom or something like that. Like it's just it's kind of the water we're swimming in. It seems like a given, but I think you're making a good point that this idea that everybody should like every student should have things differentiated for them is actually a relatively new idea. And I think once you get into schools and start looking around the nuts and bolts of it, um, I would say that all three types of school, so we use this model of the traditional mainstream and progressive school, all three have differentiation, but their definitions of differentiation are differentiated. They have different ideas about what differentiation should look like. So we talked previously about the traditional schools in a whole class lesson. It is true that there might not be a ton of extra support or genuine differentiation, but you might see differentiation done just in terms of the whole class level, like there's an upper group and a lower group, that kind of thing. What we're going to get into today is to look at the kind of more individual or small group focused differentiation, which is very common in the mainstream type of schools or the kinds of schools you probably find down the street. Anything else we should say about traditional differentiation before we get into this? Only the traditional school or teacher might not even refer to it or acknowledge that it is differentiation. The traditional school kind of wants everybody to be in the same place, doing the same thing, because that's the right thing. That's what the master is teaching the apprentice. 
everyone has to acknowledge at some point that not everybody is realistically in the same place. So one of the ways they might get around it with is by differentiating by age level. I mean, my, oh, that's not differentiation. Well, it actually is. For you to put the seven-year-olds and the nine-year-olds in different classes with different teachers, you are differentiating by age because you're saying, of course, the seven-year-olds can't do the same thing as the three-year-olds or the 15-year-olds. However, you look back at models 150 years ago, one-room schoolhouse and, and so on, they, they were not differentiated by age. Within them, of course, there would be natural differentiation. I think what we're talking about here is explicit teacher-led differentiation, as you say, within an individual lesson or a class. But yeah, even in a traditional school, you will see that differentiation. And the bigger schools, you will differentiate across you know, maybe you have a hundred kids in a grade level and they'll be higher and lower set for math, for English and so on. No matter how traditional the school is, they realize, yeah, we're, if we're going to teach maths to these hundred kids, it might be better to put the top 15 in one group and the kids that need a little bit more help or take longer to get it, they would go in a different group. So yeah, no matter how far you go back in our history, we because of our empathy and because of our understanding, we do on some level always make allowances. But traditional schools, I don't think they always see it as a benefit. It's not always a, a plus. It's something that we would like grudgingly do. Whereas when we get into mainstream, as we'll see, it's it's a benefit of the system. It's something that is good for us. I think trying to see from that traditional teacher part of me, the idea is we have a common goal we're trying to get everyone to. And yes, we do acknowledge some are closer to already reaching that standard or that level of mastery, and some are further back. But my primary goal as a traditional teacher is to get everyone to that level. Whereas when we move to mainstream, the shift that happens in this teacher idea is, no, I'm not trying to get you all up to the curriculum level. I'm okay if some of you far exceed the curriculum level. That's part of my job now. So I think that's an important distinction. The more traditional teacher sees it as there is a level we're trying to get everyone up to, to achieve to that level of success, or, you know, to go throw back to this kind of master apprentice model. It's like, I want to know that everyone leaving here can make a damn good chair and table set kind of a thing. And that there's a right way to do that and a correct way to get you up to speed to do that. Because the end goal of this is for you to be able to be a master at that. Whereas the mainstream game shifts and says, no, 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 we don't have one standard. We've got like an overarching standard that we're orienting to, but we know some people are going to be well below it. We know some people are going to be well above it. And we just have to find everyone's zone of proximal development and make the most efficient and effective use of class time to maximize your development while you're here. Yeah, so it's core and deeply related to how those two models view the world and view the idea of progress. There is a perfection to be attained within the master and apprentice model, whereas, yeah, it's a, a series of steps to get you better and better towards your next goal in the mainstream. And, and both of them have their strengths. And so today, when we look at differentiation in the mainstream classroom, what do we need to know, Rob? Well, I think we've already touched on this idea of zone of proximal development. And I think we've been using this analogy for the relationship in a mainstream school of the coach and like the Olympic athlete. 
And I think the zone of proximal development, at least for me, is usually best described as using kind of a weight analogy. So if I'm an actual Olympic trainer, I'm wanting to make sure we're getting the absolute most out of every training session for the absolute best level of Olympic achievement. So I'm going to find the exact weights that are going to get us the maximum development. I don't want to waste an entire training session with weights that were too light and you didn't really benefit from them. I don't want to spend an entire training session with weights that are too heavy that you didn't get the maximum benefit or possibly even injure you. I want to constantly be checking in with assessments with data to find out that exact zone of proximal development to say, here is the level of weight at these number of reps that is of most efficient and effective uh, use for you in this session. I think take that and then just flip it to the school. And the idea is that we're trying to maximize student achievement in relationship to curriculum standards. And every class or lesson being our training session, I want to ensure that I'm finding exactly where you're at and not giving you something that's too easy and wasting our time. I want to make sure that I'm not giving you something that's too difficult. It's going to discourage you or you know not help you to make any progress. I want to constantly be using my assessments, my data, all this sort of stuff to zoom in, find out exactly what it is that you need. And if you're doing that and you've got 20 or 30 kids in the class, I can guarantee you they're not all going to need the same thing. So the coach as a teacher then acknowledges that, doesn't ignore it, acknowledges it, and then finds what are the most effective and efficient ways to do this. However, a little caveat, in that prioritizing of efficiency and effectiveness, I would say efficiency typically trumps out over the effectiveness because, of course, this is a never-ending spiral. There's always something we could be doing that'd be more effective, but it's a matter of time, resources, all these sorts of things of what we can offer. So as I already alluded to, I think all of this starts with assessments. And this is really the thing. It's no longer the master's traditional opinion on where a student's at or what a student needs or how they're doing. We're using assessment data. In theory, it's objective data, diagnostic assessments to see where the student's starting, creating clear goals for where we want them to get, and then checking in, measuring along the way to see if they're getting there or not. And that's how we tune in to find out what that level of differentiation is that would be the best fit for the student. So we've got this data. What are some of the common ways, Brendan, that we would see teachers implement offering differentiation based on this data? Just before I get into that, I was just thinking when you were describing that, it's a really uh, meaty and a really um, appealing idea for sure. Hey, we're going to give your kid, this student, exactly what they need. We're going to measure how they achieve and we're going to do pre-assessment diagnostics to know exactly where they are yeah it's harder it's harder than that that's the dream though and it does sound very very appealing what i also like to say is that the progressive mainstream and the traditional all have benefits in this area so it sounds like we're saying oh this is so great this is the greatest thing we've ever seen and it is pretty damn fantastic as an idea that we're all different and we can support each other to get better but as you'll see later in both the babies in the bathwater, this is not a perfect answer to the differences in humanity and this brings me to the idea of how that support is is done so yeah, of course, we could differentiate in a million different ways. And, and this term of personalized differentiation went around probably about 10, 15 years ago. And I think we kind of dialed back a little bit in the mainstream to be like, okay, I think we're only really going to be effectively able to differentiate for three groups within 
a class. If we have 30 kids in a mainstream school, you know, we can probably do three levels of differentiation, which means that the kids could be working on three different products or making three different things, or they could be have three different processes to get to the end point, or they could have multiple different ways to differentiate. Yeah, let's pause there because I feel this is coming later in our notes, but I think this really is the time that we should bring this up. When we're talking about differentiation, typically we're talking about three things, which is the differentiation of content, the differentiation of process, and the differentiation of product. And I know this is up your alley, Brendan, with the work that you're doing in schools. Can you give us like the 101? What, what's this idea? When we're talking about differentiation, it's not some giant thing. It's really just these three different approaches. So what does it mean to differentiate content, process, and product? Yeah. So if I use kind of a simple analogy, something like, let's say I'm teaching story writing with kids, the content could be different. They could be studying three different types of stories. And that allows me to use a, a simple story, maybe the three little pigs and something a little bit more complex. Someone might be reading a Harry Potter style book. If we're looking at um, information books, one kid could be studying sharks, one could be studying medieval history or something as such. And I, I, I would also just toss in there with content, could be topics, could be level of difficulty of the content, and it could be the quantity of content. There's multiple levels of how content would look in every subject, but it's the stuff that you study. Basically, it's the information that you're, that you're kind of learning. Product is the end thing that you do. Now, that could be they could be making a poster, could be a work of art, it could be a story, they could be working on a science report or an experiment, but it's the thing that will you'll be able to see at the end when they've finished. Everybody could have a different product. You know, some of the artwork at our school, everybody's studying the idea of light and shade, but the product they bring at the end could be completely different. Some may be doing sculptures, some may be doing dance, or um, some may be doing poetry. So the product that you would see is different. So different information, different things that they're making. And then a final way that you could differentiate is people could be making a similar thing, but you could differentiate the number of steps they take to get the, the process. You could simplify the process or have more steps or have more options that the students could take. Okay, this group, you're going to make a presentation and you're going to have this three steps that you will do to get you there. And this group, you're also going to make a presentation, but you've got four or five steps and you've actually got multiple choices you could take and pathways to make this. It gets tricky very quickly. And so what we would normally see in a, in a lesson that had three levels of differentiation is you would probably only make a, a big difference to one of those three things. So yeah, you would either differentiate for content process or, or product. And if I go back to um, maybe a, a math analogy, I'm teaching arithmetic, maybe process is the thing I'm teaching differently. The way to solve this calculation, I might teach different strategies to get there, but you're all going to end up with a finished addition question at the end of it. it it's really quite complex. And it, this could be a whole, I was just talking about how a math project or an art project, a, a story, or a scientific experiment all have those three, three same things of content, process, and product, and they could all be differentiated. There's a great series of videos that Wired Magazine make where they explain a concept to small children and then 
primary school, middle school, high school, university, and then professors. And you see how this same concept, I think they do one on DNA and then they do a musical one on, on harmony. And it's amazing to see how this same teacher explains and interacts with the student and analyzes in the same concept all the way up. Jerome Bruner, the educator, kind of came up with this idea. You can teach any concept to anybody if you differentiate in the correct way. So off on a bit of a tangent there, but this is a rich theme. <laughs> we knew it would be. Differentiation is uh, something that we have had many, many hours and years of conversation about. So with all of that, now is the setup. Now we know what we're talking about when we say differentiation. How might we see things organized in the classroom? Well, you started to address some of those. So typically you're going to see ability groupings. And what is an ability grouping? Well, in theory, most of the time it's being created by that assessment data to say, okay, we have a curriculum standard. That is our aim. And typically, usually the way that it pans out is kind of a bell curve. And there's, you know, a group of you who are approaching or, you know, that curriculum objective is kind of where you're at. There's kind of a group of you who are maybe a bit behind that. And there's a group of you that are a bit above that. And then we've got this kind of low, medium and high grouping. Or in schools, whether it's not, it might not even be lesson by lesson. There might be an actual organized thing like uh, phonics groups or reading groups. And one of the schools that we worked in together, I think it was like kindergarten, grade one and grade two, all three year levels um, would be mixed into different phonics groups. So maybe you've got a kindergarten kid and a grade two kid who are at the same level. And, you know, maybe you've got a whole bunch of the grade ones who are near the same level. But the idea was you didn't have to stay in your classroom. In the mainstream school, we begin to get this idea that the school is actually being used as a resource. And all of the differentiation isn't on the shoulders of that one teacher with their classroom door closed. Rather, it's a school-wide approach where we're using the resources of multiple teachers, teaching assistants, these sorts of things to be able to share that differentiation. Because as we're starting to allude to, it's a lot for one teacher to have to try to differentiate get the assessment data, analyze it, create groups, find that perfect zone of proximal development to constantly get the most out of it. Um, by sharing that work across the school, across the system, uh, it's a little bit more efficient and also arguably a lot more effective as well. One thing I'm going to drop in here that we'll come back to, I think, in another episode is the idea of uh, special educational needs support. So one rule of thumb in the mainstream classroom is if you have your three levels of differentiation, should anyone be higher than your highest level noticeably? Because these are bands and you're talking about real outliers, kids who are really far and above in um, your highest group or alternatively lower than your lowest group, you start to look at individualized plans for support and we get into special educational needs. A lot of schools use a three-tier system. So tier one is like everybody is your normal differentiation. And then tier two, you would get some extra support. And then you move into like very specialized individual learning plans and so on. So mainstream school starts to take that into account. Yeah. And what's interesting there again is the idea that that would be a responsibility of the teacher to notice, to address, and then to create a plan like that. Now, in particular, for the students who are like well below your lowest group, we've mentioned that in a traditional school, it's possible that some of the extra help or support is not coming from the classroom, but rather from parents. So in a more traditional approach, it might be kind of the expectation that the parents are helping with additional practice at home. Parents are helping with homework so that when the student comes to class, 
they're a little bit better equipped. Whereas in the mainstream school, there's more of this idea of like, no, no, within the school, within our educational assistant program, within our SEND program, within our special needs programs, whatever, we should be the ones offering that school. Arguably, the parents are usually informed about what the learning objectives are. So this might be a weekly or monthly newsletter or, you know, an in-depth parent meeting at the start and maybe again halfway through the year, something like that. Um, or just, you know, being able to see their children's notes or unit packages, whatever these sorts of things. Typically all the learning objectives are laid out within there quite transparently. And really it's up to the parent to just act more as like an advocate for the child to just check that the level of differentiation is appropriate. So traditional parent might be more the policeman of making sure that the kid is you know, doing their work, doing their homework, these sorts of things, helping them to get caught up to the level. And arguably the mainstream, it's just more that the parents there as an extra form of support and practice, just to make sure that that level of differentiation that is happening in the class is the best fit. And if necessary, the parent would step in to say, Hey, I think, you know, this might be a tad easy for my kid. Like, you know, they're getting along with it or, Hey, you know, the last couple of weeks, they've really been struggling with this. Could you check in with that? And, and having that kind of interaction with the teacher on that in mainstream schools there is the standardized test and it is geared towards your career kind of the whole system is moving towards those credentials towards the, the end and parents know that in most cases and sometimes it can lead to a competitiveness within parents for better or worse and so you might see uh, them getting online programs or even tutors and actually giving their kids extra work and pushing their kids on more to get ahead of the curve and so that is kind of differentiation that you would not really consider mostly but when you think about it not everyone has that kind of parent and some of those parents are very very supportive and some may may not have the same level of support again this is something that the the um, progressive school would start to address a little bit more we're not on a level playing field but the mainstream school would say well everyone can make progress and what we're going to do is we'll find out where you're at and we're going to help you to move forward that is the ideal and as we'll see there there are some things that are really beautiful about that and others that might not be as as uh, straightforward or as helpful yeah so just to cap, wrap that up basically the responsibility of the teacher is to find out what works for that maximum level of achievement and progress and as we say we like the coach and coached or athlete model and they're creating this kind of training plan. But given that they're not a one-to-one -one coach, they've got 30, 60, 100 kids, these are broad levels of differentiation. And of course, differentiation has a lot of babies, a lot of great stuff that it's brought to the table. What are a couple of those, Rob? Well, the one last point to make, and I would argue that this is where you might see some of the baby and bathwater discussion come in, is from the more traditional viewpoint, the kind of differentiation we've just been discussing, this mainstream approach to differentiation, a traditional teacher might express this or might keep it to themselves, but they might not actually think that the kind of differentiation we've been discussing really is a good thing because it can be seen as a way out of duty and rigor for the students, especially when it comes to like content and product for sure. You know, to give some traditional teachers credit, typically the kind of differentiation that you might see in a more traditional classroom is probably more about the differentiation of process. So, hey, you can do this with a partner or on your own, or, you know, this is something you can work on at home, in school, these sorts of things there, you know, there'd be some leeway there. 
And of course, traditional teachers do, as we already alluded to, differentiate by age. You know, the seven-year-olds are in grade one and the eight-year-olds are in grade two, this kind of a thing. But this idea that a student doesn't have to do this content or that a student doesn't have to do this end product and can maybe get away with something a bit easier. Typically, there is like a little bit of a struggle there, but I think that the mainstream teacher steps in and says, no, 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 what we're trying to do is trying to maximize that level of achievement. And if we can see that a kid is able to do more here by having these little changes met, what's more important to us is their level of achievement and the opportunities that opens. That is more important to us than any sense of lineage or tradition or just my own personal teacher expectations. So I think that's one last little point to kind of distinguish between the two. I'm just going to say the same thing you say every week. If, if you're saying, yeah, of course, this is amazing. This is great. This is exactly exactly what we want. It may be because that's the kind of water we're already swimming in. And we need to be aware that the other traditional and progressive schools will have a take on this that's worth listening to as to why they do it in different ways. But one thing that is clear is that this is a huge change from traditional. And this is one of the biggest selling points of the mainstream. Bit of a deal breaker. Someone comes in and they, oh, by the way, we're going to do this. We're going to make this curriculum fit your child. It's a big gun to bring to the party, to, to make a horrific metaphor. I think you're mixing <laughs> analogies there. To go back to babies, the good things from this, We've mentioned a few times now, obviously, this idea of zone of proximal development. So less wasted time um, compared to probably what you're going to see in some traditional lessons. At its absolute best, and maybe this is inflating the baby too much, uh, you can actually have students in a flow state. So that idea of like the exact right level of challenge, something that, you know, is of interest to them that really is meeting their needs. And, you know, it's one of the tropes that I go to, but for myself as a teacher, I'm working with kids. Childhood is short. I don't want to be wasting some of their childhood time with a lesson that's not meaningful. And, you know, the mainstream teacher part of me also just wants to make sure that it's not an ineffective or inefficient lesson as well. I want to make sure that the time we're having together is well spent. And that can be on many level levels. And one of them is just simply on this level of, has this been a good use of their time in relationship to our goals here? Differentiation being based on assessments and data rather than opinions is good because as we often say, people's opinions and gut feelings can be right more than they can be wrong. But those times where they are wrong, it's obviously not as helpful. So to have decisions based on data rather than gut feelings is certainly a step up from some of the traps of a more traditional approach. You know, a good example, if you're not exactly sure what we mean, you know, you get the idea of like, hey, what's this kid's reading level at? You go, oh, I haven't heard them read much. And, you know, compared to these kids and all that, like they seem to be lower than this group. And then you actually sit down with the kid and then you ask them like comprehension questions and score their things and then do a reading assessment with them. And you go, oh, actually, they're much higher than I had realized. The fact that I hadn't heard much from them is what was skewing my data or my impression of them. So things based on data, we like that. It's just another tool to bring to the tool belt. Uh, students supporting each other as an additional resource for supporting class. 
as well as the introduction of classroom assistance seems great. So even within that low, medium and high group that we talked about, you know, those kids in any one of those groups can be supporting each other. You can also mix students from those groups, or we were discussing this before we started recording. Even if you do have a more traditional approach of like an just a higher group and a lower group class. So there's, you know, the one math group that's well above standards, and there's the one math group that's below. Well, sometimes the differentiation is fantastic when you can have those kids who are kind of clustered closer together, working together. But then sometimes it's nice to break that up and have some of those higher ability students working with some of the lower ability students and being able to work in skills for both of them at the same time. Uh, what about this idea, Brennan, of this being a new set of skills for teachers to master? Well, given that we as humans want to grow, as educators want to grow, having this explicit set of new skills that you can employ to actually become a more conscious, I guess, educator is a really positive thing. So the professional development that comes in in the mainstream school that allows you to become more effective in your summative and formative assessment, as we call it. So the assessment along the way and the assessment at the end of the kind of study and uh, being able to find that zone of proximal development. I, I'm by no means an expert, but I can see how I over the years have become more and more able with a kid to fairly quickly find that zone of proximal development or within a class with a little bit of an observation, a little bit of talk. It's something that you develop as a teacher over time. The more you teach specific things, the more time you spend. And like you just said, you know, even working just for a few minutes with a kid, you can be like, ah, they're here. But then it's not just a gut feeling. You back it up with, with the data as well. So you're looking for evidence. This is a whole new set of skills for a teacher and they're applicable in so many ways. So, you know, that's definitely a positive in the eyes of a mainstream kind of society. The other thing is that in a traditional school, arguably, as we said, there's kind of like a line that we want you to get to. There's a level that we want you to get to because that's what we call mastery. And although we do still use that term mastery of skills, and that's a very important idea, there isn't really an end point in this, it's kind of the idea is that we're not just trying to get you to a point, we're trying to help you to meet your maximum potential within, and here's a caveat, within the kind of organization of the curriculum and the path we are on as a school system, which arguably has a lot of positives for the individual and society, but will be critiqued at the progressive kind of stage. But, you know, we're helping you to meet your maximum potential. And if you basically read any mainstream school's mission statement or vision statement, that's peppered all the way through by, you know, becoming what they can be. And then it's a, a wonderful dream to have. And it's something that's very hard to, into practice, but uh, the best mainstream schools are really making, putting that at their center. And in line with that, the emphasis that is on progress, this idea of value added or you looking at where you were when you started and, and where you are currently and where you kind of heading and celebrating the growth that we have. That's the positive side of the kind of mainstream ideal that we celebrate growth. You know, we've talked about the negative before of getting locked into kind of a, a race mentality that it's uh, just about, you know, gunning down for the next kind of goal. But to celebrate the steps along the way and there's a, this mainstream approach allows you to celebrate everybody. Everybody's making progress in some way and it allows you to celebrate that. Yeah, and tying that back to this idea of diagnostics, this comes up when I'm speaking with parents often as I say, in a more traditional approach might 
you know, involved doing some work in class and some things, and then some kind of final product or final assessment or final test. And if you get a B on that last test, we go, hey, you know, good job. But this mainstream approach says, well, getting a B in and of itself isn't necessarily good. Where did you start six weeks ago? Could you have already gotten a B on this? And you've actually made no progress and no growth over these last six weeks? Or did you start at an F? And over these six weeks, we've developed this trajectory of growth for you. And you've ended up at a B. Because arguably, the kid who scored a B, but started at a B, that's less of a success than the kid who started at an F and ended at a C. There's been that huge growth. I know we're going to get to this in the bathwater in just a second, but at least that is a new idea that's being introduced into the system. And I think tying this all together, there's just this overall willingness to move beyond the idea of students only working with those at their grade level and instead begin to see students at their ability level as opposed to grade level. And by making more accommodations, by providing more differentiation, by having some flexibility around content, process, and product, we're really removing a lot of unnecessary blocks that could be holding back students' potential while utilizing the school as a resource and making the most, you know, again, being trying to be the most effective and the most efficient with the systems, with the resources, with the people, with the environments that we have, all this sort of stuff. And this idea that, you know, the teacher is really taking on the responsibility for the student's success and also taking responsibility for their failure. So getting rid of one of those bathwaters of the traditional approach, which is if the kid's not doing well, that's the kid's fault. And at least in mainstream, there's this sway the other way to say, oh, the kid's not doing well. Oh, crap. You know, for me as a teacher, that shows that my coaching skills aren't a good fit. What do I have to step up my game with here? And and on on that, it's then the responsibility becomes more sure. Uh, when the, one of the benefits of the mainstream done well is that you are able to balance the responsibility for growth between the students, sometimes the parents, the individual teacher, and even the school as a whole. And I've seen that done really well, and I've seen those conversations happen. We're going to come to standardized testing and how that makes that harder in a second. But in best case scenario, we're all in this together. We're all on the same team. We're all heading for the same goal. And sure, it's only the student who's actually on that path, but we're in a support role. And if they're not making progress, there's something that we can all do. And you hear a lot. I'm strawmanning a little bit with the traditional school, but a lot of it will often be try harder. You just got to put more effort in. And yes, effort is incredibly important. And without it, you're not going to succeed. In some traditional settings, basically that's the answer always. And, and this kind of readdresses that and says, sure, effort is one part of it, but there's also the skills. There's also other social and emotional aspects. And the, between the parent, the teacher and the kid, we can work together again. That's, I'm not saying every traditional teacher thinks this way, but um, yes. There go the babies. Now time for the bathwater. I know both you and I have been doing our best to bite our tongues on a few of these things to save this till the end. As we've already said, the picture we are painting of the mainstream approach to differentiation is the ideal. And I would say some of the times it is happening in the way that we described it. But to have it happening constantly to the degree we've been discussing today is and can be extremely exhaustive on teachers, schools, resources, systems, all of these sorts of things. So we kind of painted the best picture of this, but you know, speaking for myself as someone who's still teaching and tries to 
provide differentiation, who values it. At the end of the day, there is, you know, the efficiency effectiveness balance of like trying to find that 80-20 principle of like, okay, there's a lot that I could do, but what's the 20% that I could do that's going to give 80% of the benefit here? Bit of a ramble there. To get into some of the bathwater, you hinted at this earlier, Brennan, this idea of, yeah, you're all in this game together. Yes, we're all hoping for your best and highest levels of achievement, and we will do everything we can within the classroom. But those parents who really do know that at the end of the day, final scores are the thing that matters, well, we bring in this thing of tutoring being used outside of school for this competition of marks to get the best score. And for families that don't have the resources to provide that for their kid, well, that is a huge advantage on the part. You could say these are like performance-enhancing drugs. These are performance-enhancing practices that parents can get into. So there can be this rather toxic culture. Sometimes it is not supportive and in the best service of the child. Yeah, and it gets us to the point that we're still within a credential-based system. So yeah, in earlier primary, we can live in a bubble somewhat and separate ourselves from the eventual path that the students will be on. But as mainstream school acts as kind of a filter for society, as we've said multiple times, you're, there are multiple exit points of when you you leave. And it is geared towards a competition because each one of those exit points usually has a bunch of standardized tests, quite high stakes standardized tests in there. And they are not interested in value added. And they are not necessarily interested in assessing higher order thinking skills or more complex types of thinking. They're not interested in differentiating for you other than in the letter that you are given at the end of the test. So, and that's just a, a truth about the mainstream school system for all it's good for all of its great ideas. Even the best schools and the best teachers are wrestling with the fact that when the kids get to 14, 16, 18, 22, whatever, they're going to do standardized tests that are very much outside the hands of anybody in the school. The A opens doors and the F closes them. As a wise co-host of this show once kind of sort of said. Yeah, that's the thing. Like at the end of the day, only the highest marks are going to get you into the highest level programs. And marks below that, no matter how much you grew, no matter how much differentiation and support was offered for you, and no matter how much growth you showed, at the end of the day, if you don't fall within that highest level of marks, you're not going to be able to enter that kind of program if that was your goal. And so the marks that you end up with on these standardized tests or in your reports at the end of school or in those critical years are the things that either open doors or close doors for you. To take a progressive school approach, which you know has a much more counselor, counseled kind of relationship to it, where much more emphasis is put on student meaning and differentiation, but differentiation in the sense of, well, kind of content is up to you, process is up to you, and product is up to you. Whereas in this more mainstream approach, yes, we're offering tons of differentiation, but all of it is in relationship to the curriculum and curriculum standards. So it's actually, although we're talking about a lot of moving parts here with this mainstream approach to differentiation, it's actually a really narrow band or a really narrow form of differentiation because everything that's being differentiated 
is about what's on that curriculum. And, you know, you might get harder questions or you might have your process differentiated or you might get to do a different product at the end, but we're doing that rather than helping you get what you need by tuning into who you are and where you are and what your goals are independent of the curriculum. The mainstream approach says, hey, what are your goals from this curriculum? Do you value achieving against this curriculum? Cool, then we've got everything you need. Oh, but anything that's not focused towards the curriculum or towards those endpoints of these standardized tests that are coming up, cool, we'll do our best to like toss that in if, if we can, but certainly not at the expense of this other stuff. And the progressive, I think, you know, basically says like, Essentially, we've got a lot of this stuff happening in schools and this differentiation uh, in service of the system, or as you often say, Brennan, you know, this is the stuff that's wagging the dog in many schools, as opposed to actually tuning into the individual's needs and finding out what's actually the best fit for them in their life versus what's the best fit for you right now in relationship to where you are scoring up against this curriculum set of expectations we have for you. Yeah, and it is, for any mainstream teacher, it is the real struggle, knowing that you have all of these students in your your class that have a bunch of needs that are falling outside the curriculum, but you may or may not have the resources to address. And you as the teacher or administrator have accountability that those students are meeting. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the point that can't be stressed enough is you get what you need in relation to the curriculum rather than the progressive school that would say, you just get what you need in relation to your life and who you are. That is probably the biggest challenge that almost every teacher I've ever spoken to in a mainstream school of just knowing, especially as you get further and further the school and closer to those uh, high stakes tests. And this is not about, you know, what we usually hear about teacher salaries and things like that. This is purely teachers concerned for the well-being of their kids and not being able to really do as much about it as they they want because the system ain't going to change not going to change anytime soon and that is if you don't score those points on that test you aren't going in that particular direction it it's um it puts a lot of teachers in a real bind and if you are in that um bind now i really empathize with you you know as always don't be afraid to talk to people about it find people who listen to you and a lot of schools now do are offering many more counseling services and and things like that and, and you know our model for progressive schools of the council and the council is there for a very specific reason because it follows the kind of model of unpacking what you need as a human and i think it's a, it's a good sign that more and more mainstream schools are offering more and more counseling and then you speak to any special needs coordinator or counselor in those schools and they will tell you exactly how the system of standardized testing is making their job much, much harder. Yeah, and there's this desire that we're not selling kids short on things. And from the progressive side, I think it's being tuned into making sure we're not selling them short on, in terms of what they need. And from a traditional approach, there's also this idea, I think, of not wanting to sell kids short in terms of the security of what we're providing them. Because 
I don't think we've gotten into this today, but I often say like between these three types of school, traditional, mainstream, and progressive, although each kind of solves some of the problems of the previous one, this isn't a hierarchy in terms of one is better than the other because each of these three can either be done really well, somewhat well, or not done well. And I often use like the term high functioning. And it's like, I would, you know, although personally there are parts of me that I, as a teacher, lean much more towards desiring to be in a mainstream to progressive environment and wouldn't necessarily want my son going through a traditional school. I would much rather my son in a high functioning traditional school than I would want him in an even medium to low level mainstream or progressive school. The catch is... It has to be, we talk about the kind of quadrants, we talk about the idea of the systems and the and the culture and then the individual kind of thoughts and feelings. And the individual has to be in alignment with that. So I think, you know, it gets really complex because even the best, the best, best functioning mainstream, progressive or traditional school will not be a fit for everybody. And that's when we get to the post-progressive idea that attempts to acknowledge all of those three and find a balance between them. We don't talk about it much these days. Spoilers. Spoilers. But uh, there is a fourth kind of of paradigm or whatever that we believe is seeking to integrate the strengths and weaknesses, which is why we're spending literally 50 to 70 episodes going into detail of, (laughs) of what each of these three approaches to school look like. But to my point that I was saying, and I do agree with what you just said, a high-functioning mainstream school can be a great place to have your kid in because it's like having an elite-level Olympic trainer to help your kid with their academics, essentially. But a elite level or high functioning traditional school already has this idea of like, we're not leaving any children behind. We're going to make sure everyone gets up to this level. And to not give everyone access to some of the same things does create a lot of extra moving parts. And there is always the risk that yes, that differentiation sounds good, but that differentiation not done well, or even differentiation done poorly might actually leave the kids worse off than had we had this slightly more homogenous thing. Now, I know giving maybe a little more credit to a traditional approach than maybe what actually does uh, play out in practice, but I would say a high-functioning traditional school does possibly offer a child more than a poorly done approach to differentiation. And as we alluded to, to do this well, to offer this kind of differentiation that we're talking about, does take a ton of training, does take a lot of new skills. And you're not great as a teacher at all of these things at first. And we as teachers have our own you know, trajectory of growth and development through this and achievement of the success of being able to offer differentiation in a mainstream school at an elite level. And it is true that some of our mistakes, well, the consequences fall on on the kids more than they do on us as we are developing and, and uh, building these skills. It's a really complex topic that we've kind of addressed in a few specific contexts here. We hope uh, you enjoyed it. Have you got anything to say on that? You know, please get in touch with us at reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter or throw a brick wrapped in note paper through Rob's window, his castle, lives in a big castle on a hill, or, or anything, whatever. We're very happy to talk to you. Get creative. Find a way to get in touch with us. Hi. If you really or, want or we, to, you'll find a we'll way. we'll get in touch with you. We'll get in touch with you. All right.
All right, Brennan, what's our next foray into in the mainstream school? We've got I homework. We're look at yeah, the concept of homework and and uh, work outside of school hours, and then we'll be looking into how a mainstream approaches this idea of classroom behavior management or discipline, as it was known when I was a lad. A forgotten discipline, the di- discipline of discipline. Aye. All right. So, bye. Thanks, Brendan. In Okay. Did it. Hello. Hello and welcome to Reinventing Education, the Rob McLeod way. I'm your host, Rob McLeod. And if it wasn't fixed, we're going to break it. <laughs>